Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the saying, you are what you eat. And I've been thinking about health, hormones, food, and ecosystems. I've been thinking about the incredible complexity of the systems that make our bodies run at full capacity and the interdependencies of the parts. And I've been thinking about nature and the miraculous balance of its ecosystem and the place the two coincide. My guest today is Dr. Neil D. Barnard. He is the New York Times best-selling author of nearly 20 books on health and nutrition, including his most recent book, Your Body in Balance, The New Science of Food, Hormones, and Health. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Well, thank you. Great to be with you today. So I want to start with just a little bit about you, about what led you into the field of medicine um, originally. Um, Actually, I went into medicine because um, I was a psychology student in in college, and I thought uh, the brain was a very interesting thing, and I went into medicine only to become a psychiatrist. That was my only interest. And all of the other amazing things that happened in medicine were things that I, only, I discovered later. So it, that was the door that got me in. Okay, so we're going to have to talk about the brain later because there's been so many developments in science technologically, but also just theoretically as to the connection to how the brain works and then the connection to the the, um, the stomach, which at some point they said, you know, they were completely independent systems and no relationship whatsoever. So we'll definitely talk about that. Um, so that's a big shift. And, and what changed your perspective uh, while you were practicing medicine, as you progressed? Like what, what were the aha moments or the, the uncomfortable um, realizations that you started to see, hey, there, there's something more here. Something's a, a, there's some disconnects. One of them occurred uh, in the first year after I finished my residency. I was running a psychiatric ward in New York City. And um, in, part of my work was to see medically ill people who had psychiatric complications. So like a, a person who had had a severe cardiac problems but was now delusional or a patient with a serious HIV infection who became bipolar or something like that. Um, and in the course of this work, I started to be troubled by the fact that we weren't preventing anything. We, we didn't do anything about a heart attack until it came into the emergency room door. We didn't do anything about breast cancer until we found it on a mammogram. And I thought if much of our power is in changing diet and lifestyle and other things so that these diseases may not occur, and yet we were really ignoring that entirely, and I felt that that needed to change. And and first and foremost, and that has to do with the food that's on our plate. So that, that was a big driver for me. And I'm guessing at that moment, like, you've got a couple choices. You can just say, oh, this is so frustrating that, you know, this, I'm going to quit and find something else to do. Or you can say, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to change the, the way things are looked at and, and try to solve this problem. And I'm, that's the, the route you chose. And I'm guessing, though, you probably experienced a number of hurdles. Endless hurdles. <laughs> but that does not mean we're, we're not making great progress. We're making huge progress. Um, but I have to say, one of the first hurdles was sort of my own life. I I grew up in North Dakota, and so every day of my life was eating roast beef, baked potatoes, and corn, um, except for special occasions when it was roast beef, baked potatoes, and peas. And And maybe some pie. (laughs) uh, The occasional pie or chocolate cake, but but I didn't really know much about healthy eating. And then research started coming out very clearly 
showing that diets that had that emphasized meat and dairy products, uh, animal products in general, were linked to heart disease. And then they were linked to cancer, uh, colorectal cancer, strongly linked to meat intake, for example, prostate cancer linked to dairy. Um, and yet these were staples for my family and kind of everybody I knew. Um, and I ended up having to make quite a number of changes in my own life. I, I'm very glad I did. I have no regrets. But, um, but you have to sort of confront yourself first. Um, so now I don't eat animal products at all. Um, and, uh, but, but that was perhaps 180 degrees uh, different from how I was raised. Well, and I think that takes some, some internal uh, strength and integrity as well, right? Because I don't know uh, how old you are, but, you know, I grew up with the pyramid, and, and now the pyramid has been flipped on its head. Um, and, and throughout my lifetime, there are so many messages you're bombarded with as to, you know, what is healthy, and then it can be, you know, a complete 360 or 180, like, you know, that this is good for you, you know, that's good for you, especially with the fads and everything. So, so you, you, it seems had some um, very strong uh, determination, but also beliefs as to what seemed right to you as far as nutrition. Yes. Well, I, and I have to say, it sounds challenging to stop eating animal products. That, that, and many people feel that way. You know, if you suggest to a person that they should try a vegan diet to, to reverse their diabetes or to lose weight or to reduce their cancer risk or, or to reverse heart disease, all of which are, are things that you can do. Um, when you say vegan, people think um, that you must be a philosopher. Or maybe you have a taste for folk music, or you wear tie-dyed clothes, or they have all kinds of wild images of what a vegan is. It sounds very intellectual and a little bit like a hippie. Um, the truth is, it just doesn't. It just means you don't need animal products. And uh, I should also say that in the same year I adopted a vegan diet, I also quit smoking, and that was hard uh, because of the addictive qualities of nicotine. It was uh, really that was more of a challenge. Changing my diet, I have to say, was was really very easy. Um, but in the work that we have done over time with thousands and thousands of research participants, we have found ways to help people make this, this change. And um, we have found it really quite simple, actually, for most people, but they, they do need a little support. But the, the big thing now is we're discovering that it's not just heart disease or colon cancer or diabetes that relate to, to food. It's a million other things that you would never connect with your diet, like menstrual cramps, or infertility, or endometriosis, or erectile dysfunction, um, thyroid problems. And the, the, the connections with diet are not immediately apparent. But as we started to discover these things, I personally got more and more excited because it meant we have power far beyond what we thought we did, provided we make the right kinds of dietary choices. It's so interesting because I thought about it um, while I was reading your book, and you mention it now again, that people are sort of reticent to change their diet. And and you think, okay, well, yes, that makes sense, and yes, it's challenging, but also think, well, wouldn't someone want to just jump at the chance that it's something that simple, right, that I can just change my diet 
Um, you founded the Barnard Medical Center in Washington, D.C. to create a new model that integrates nutrition into conventional medical care. And and that got me thinking about what was missing in the old model. Like, where were and are the, the disconnects in traditional health care as far as not really focusing on diet and preventative care and, and really focusing on a pharmaceutical solution? Um, great question. Uh, we see this with many conditions. Uh, diabetes is perhaps the, the real obvious one. Diabetes now, either diabetes or pre-diabetes, now affect about 45% of the American population, if you can believe that, according to the latest figures. Which is an insane number. Right? It is. Right. And, and epidemic. It is, it, it, Completely an epidemic, and it is financially extraordinarily expensive. Um, I'm talking about the complications that people have, and the, just the price of insulin syringes. It's not generic. It's you're paying top dollar for these drugs, and somebody's getting rich off your disease. Um, but how, but here's what happens: person comes into the doctor's office. They've got diabetes, um, or, or or maybe they're getting a new diagnosis, and the doctors uh, will give lip service to diet. But they pretty soon put people on, or almost immediately put them on oral medications for it, and that graduates to more and more medications. And eventually, they, they have a talk about needles, and uh, don't be afraid. You know, insulin's okay, but you will never get off of it for the rest of your life. Um, and the patient finds this all completely disturbing. Um, and the doctor is making a mistake uh, if that's all they do because we have learned about the cause of type 2 diabetes. And it does not come, it's not caused by the usual idea that you eat too much sugar and that caused your diabetes. Um, that's a naive sort of pre-1950s view that my blood sugar is high, so it must have been from eating sugar. The, the cause of, of type 2 diabetes has to be shared between the doctor and the patient. And it is, uh, you eat fatty foods, cheeseburger, uh, chicken wings, the fat, get from the food into your bloodstream and it packs inside the cells of the body. And when the cells fill with fat, they can no longer respond to your natural insulin. That's a disease. That's a condition called insulin resistance. And the longer that insulin resistance persists, the higher your blood sugar goes. And so then if you eat sugar or eat anything that turns to sugar, like bread or potatoes, your blood sugar will rise. But that wasn't the cause of it. The cause of it was fatty foods that packed fat particles inside your cells, especially the muscle and liver cells. Now, the doctor failed to explain that to the patient. And so the patient goes from not having any idea what to eat. So they think, well, maybe I shouldn't eat um, sugar or anything that has sugar in it, like fruit. And they do that, and for the rest of their life, they will never get off their medication, and their disease will only gradually worsen. If you instead explain to the patient that your cells are filled with fat, I'm going to take the fat out of your diet, let's see if we can reverse this, you have suddenly given the patient the ability to work with you to tackle the direct cause of their illness and perhaps get rid of it. Um, when I was in medical school, I never saw diabetes get better. Never. There was never a cure. Today we see it all the time. <laughs> and I only wish that I could go back in time and, and share with people in the past what we now know. And if you look at 
across the socioeconomic spectrum as well, there's more diabetes found in low-income areas, and then, of course, more dialysis centers popping up. And in those areas, because of poverty, people are eating higher fat, um, lower nutrient-rich foods, and, and um, there's less education and, and options about diet as well. And, and it seems there's the same approach towards depression. You know, when you were talking about the way a doctor would treat diabetes, I'm thinking, all right, my conversation with Johan Hari, the same thing about depression. You come in, you say how you're feeling. There's not much talk about cause. It's just take this medication, and there's more and more and more medication down the road. And there's a huge economic force behind that. Uh, people are making a lot of money off diabetes medications, off antidepressants, and other things. And, and I don't mean to say that there's not a role for them, but the role is wildly exaggerated. And, and the role of more natural approaches that address the cause is underappreciated. And um, uh, it was in 2003 that the National Institutes of Health gave us a grant to try to come up with a better diet for type 2 diabetes. And that's when we formulated this diet that avoids animal products, a totally vegan diet, um, keeps oils very, very low, and where we started to see the first patients have their disease disappear. Um, and it doesn't happen to everybody, but it, but it does happen to, to some people, and, and almost everybody improves to one degree or another. But in the course of doing this work, um, we did a, 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 a study with GEICO, the car insurance company, to see how it would, would, how it would fly in the workplace. So you've got 2,000 people in this workplace, and what if you served healthy foods at work? Um, and in the course of that, we discovered that, yes, diabetes gets better, and yes, people lose weight, but mood improves. We saw depression starting to get better and anxiety starting to get better. And we, we used special paper and pencil tests to evaluate mood, and you track them over time, and these things start to get better. And we thought, well, it's because you're losing weight or you're pumped up because you're not on so much diabetes medication. It's actually more than that. Um, the gut bacteria change. The populations of bacteria in your gut change. And the crosstalk between the gut and the brain, which you alluded to in the introduction, um, takes a very different turn. So that um, we believe it's the short-chain fatty acids or other compounds that are produced by the healthy gut bacteria that are feeding back to the brain and improving the mood. You just made me think, oh, and what if you served healthy food in the hospital? <laughs> You're the editor-in-chief <laughs> of, of the Nutrition Guide for Clinicians. It's a nutritional textbook given to all second-year medical students in the United States. And and I was just like, how is it possible that this is a novel concept to study nutrition, you know, in relation to health, preventative and healing? But I was remembering back, and this was probably two decades ago, when my, mother, my father had open-heart surgery, and his first meal out of surgery, literally the first meal was beef burger. And I mean, I went ballistic. I went and tracked down the, the surgeon. And I said, what, like, this is insanity. And he just sort of chuckled at me and said, Oh, don't worry, Ellie, you know, we, we can fix him up again. Um, and you mention in the book, you say that the focus on nutrition takes doctors out of their comfort zone. So why is that, you know, which seems like so um, completely ridiculous? Uh, and, and how are you changing it through uh, training medical students? You know, different people select different uh, professions based on their interests and, and what the profession looks like to them. And I remember when I was in a, a surgical, surgical hat and surgical garb everywhere in the hospital, even when he wasn't on a surgical rotation. He just liked the way he looked. 
And, and I guess what I'm saying is he sort of imagined himself to be a young Ben Casey or Dr. Kildare, if you remember these shows, of uh, where you were sort of the macho guy who could intervene and save a life. And uh, if you did it with a scalpel um, or you did it by rushing in and doing something dramatic and manly. And what we are now presented with um, is the fact that the vast majority of the diseases that come into our clinics and our hospitals are related to bad food choices. Now, that sounds uh, like an impossible statement, but if you look at obesity, it's not caused by you're not in the gym enough. It's, it's caused by food choices. The vast majority of cases, cancer, the majority of cases, cardiovascular disease, same story. And suddenly, the, the doctor's saying, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want to be Betty Crocker. That's not my image. I, you know, I want to be the more macho guy. And so they're uncomfortable with it. Um, I don't mean to speak so disparagingly of doctors, but I really think that there's something psychological going on with the idea of that the patient could help herself or himself with food choices. It sort of devalues the, the, the medical profession in a way. At least that's the way they feel about it. But, it, but And the sense of power as well, right? Like you, I hadn't thought about that before. You go into it to be the person who is the rescuer and the savior and, and has the power. And so right. that's a big shift, putting that back into the hands of the, the person, the, the but I have patient. To say, yeah, I agree completely, but I have to say, we, we run a clinic here at the Barnard Medical Center. And I have doctors who work here who used to work in, in other clinics would say to me, and at the other clinic, I, was, I felt like a factory worker. You know, the patient comes in, here's your prescription, next patient, here, they, they come in, here's your prescription, next patient, you come in, here's the next, you know, the next person, here's your prescription. And they felt that turned out to be not the rewarding experience they were looking for. Now with, with me uh, at, at our clinic, every single patient, no matter what you come in for, we're going to look at your diet and, uh, in the same way as if I see a pack of cigarettes in your in your shirt pocket. You might have come in for a twisted ankle, but before you leave, we're going to talk about smoking because a twisted ankle isn't going to kill you, but the smoking will. The same is true with diet. patient comes in, they've got, they came in for a flu shot. The flu, maybe not going to kill them, but the diet that they're on may well. So we make sure that we talk with them about this and we go over it in great detail. And the doctor's reaction is, suddenly, I am not a factory worker anymore. I'm working with the patients on, uh, and you're a partner with, and, and with their spouse and their family, and they're rethinking what got them sick. And the results come very rapidly when people make diet changes. So it's, it's, a, it's an extremely rewarding thing. But it does force everybody to rethink things because the fact is we're in a culture that has become quite carnivorous and we all grew up with it. Um, and it's as unhealthy for us as a, as a smoking culture would be. And on that note, how how do you think the approach to medicine is afflicted by our culture's preference for convenience and speed over quality and sustainability? When you look at it as far as um, sustainability in the planet, and we were just talking last night about buying Parmesan cheese in a big plastic container at Costco versus buying the block of cheese and shredding it yourself, you know, that we have this focus on uh, convenience. And, and does that roll over into medical decisions as well? I, I think it may. Um, the doctor says, my patients are lazy. They'd rather just pop a pill. What they mean is they think that the patients are reluctant to change their diets. And there, there's some truth to that. Everyone is a bit skeptical of, of uh, a new diet recommendation, and, and appropriately so, because there are all manner of fads out there that, that deserve to be ignored. However, um, it is not true that patients would rather just pop a pill than change their diet in a healthy way. 
Um, I have never seen a patient who wouldn't gladly take all of their pills and throw them in the trash if they really thought that there was um, some change in diet or lifestyle that could make those pills no longer necessary. Nobody wants the cost. Nobody wants the side effects. Nobody wants the, the dependency on these medications. Um, but that doesn't mean that diet change is necessarily automatic. There are a series of steps that we go through so that the patient understands what the heck you're doing. Why are we recommending a certain kind of diet? Why would it help my diabetes or my endometriosis or, or my cancer survival odds or whatever? And then walk me through it. Let's make it practical. Um, so you do have to go through, go through those steps. But in our clinic, I don't make the doctors do all that. The doctors validate it. They do the appropriate diagnostic tests. And then we have a dietetic team, uh, registered dietitians who sit down with the patient and uh, the patient's reluctant spouse, and they, they rework it together. And then we have classes that are week, uh, every week that all the patients can attend forever for free for, at no additional cost. And it just keeps them on track, and everybody loves it. Um, it's suddenly you're reaffirming health, and you're doing it in a really cool way. So the focus of your new book is on hormones and their relationship to what we eat, and that idea that certain foods cause one's body to produce more, and certain foods cause one's body to eliminate some as well. So let's walk through those steps, and from the beginning. So what are hormones? Uh, okay, hormones, I guess it's a word everybody knows, but people aren't sure really really what it means. And hormones are natural chemicals in the blood, natural compounds that your body makes. And they go from one organ to another organ, just like a letter in the mail with instructions in that letter for what you're supposed to do. So the pancreas makes insulin, and the insulin then travels through the blood to the cells of the body where it instructs that cell to allow glucose to come in. Or the ovaries make estrogens, the female sex hormones, and they go to the, to the uterus, and they have instructions on how it's going to get ready for pregnancy. Or, or the testes make testosterone, which um, I sometimes think they go to a man's brain and make him want to run for president, I guess. <laughs> but in any case, um, hormones start in one organ. They carry instructions to another organ, and... Um, there are many of them. Thyroid hormone uh, made in the thyroid gland on your neck uh, gives, you, gives uh, energy to the cells. And, um, and most people don't really understand what the hormones are, but the big thing is they don't understand how foods push their hormones one way or another and, and leading to symptoms. And how do hormones interact with fat cells? Because that seems like an important uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, testosterone goes in, estrogen comes out. A guy at the beach, he's been gaining some weight and he's got some breast development. And what has happened is that he's been eating burgers and pizza. And as he's gained weight, his body fat, the fat cells are not innocuous bags of calories. They are active factories. And the more fat you have, the more the body takes, it takes his testosterone, his male hormones, goes into the cell, and it's converted to estradiol, which is an estrogen, that comes out of the cell. And then that goes through his bloodstream to his breast area and produces breast tissue. And so now he'll complain, oh, I've got man boobs, and he'll look in the, in the mirror and say, what's this about? Um, it had nothing to do with anything other than uh, weight gain caused him to have more estrogen. And, and as he loses weight with a healthy diet, um, that is likely to go away. 
And the hormones are interacting with everything else as well. You, you talk quite a bit um, in relationship to estrogen about SHBG. So maybe you could explain what that is and, and right. kind of the, the dance there. Yes. And, and by the way, before leaving the, this concept of estrogen, mm-hmm. I should mention that um, it doesn't affect just men. It affects women. Um, it, women with more body fat um, all have a higher risk of postmenopausal breast cancer, um, substantially so. And presumably for the same reason, that um, her body fat is going to produce more estrogens, and that in turn can increase the likelihood of cells becoming cancerous and will also cause cancerous cells to, to grow. But you mentioned sex hormone binding globulin. That's a big mouth, that's a mouthful. All it is is just a, a protein molecule that travels in your blood. You have it all the time. But the more of it you have, the more it it acts as sort of a magnet to hold on to estrogens and testosterone and keep them inactive until they're needed. So hormones are trouble. If you've got too much free testosterone or too much free estrogen in your blood, it can cause biological problems. And so SHBG or sex hormone binding globulin, uh, globulin is just a protein. It binds these hormones and keeps them um, limited in their ability to act. So hormones are trouble, but I was just going to interrupt you for a second because I I, all of a sudden like a a red flag because hormones are trouble, but they're also essential, right? Fat can be trouble, but it's also essential. Um, Carbohydrates too much could be trouble, but they're also essential, right? We need, we can't cut them all out. We need them to transport proteins and do other things. And and I'm thinking it really is sort of a, a dance, right? There, there has to be balance. That's exactly it. You need to be in balance. Estrogen, if you don't have any, it's a problem. If you have too much, it's a problem. Thyroid hormone, if you have too little, you'll have all kinds of symptoms. If you have too much, it will kill you. Um, Insulin, essential to life. You have to have some. If you have too much of that, it will kill you very rapidly. So you need to be in balance. And um, I'll give you an example. Um, I mentioned this in Your Body in Balance. A young woman called me up with terrible menstrual cramps. And she said, I've got to be on a plane tomorrow. You know, I can't move. I can't get out of bed. And for maybe one in 10 women, cramps are, are really bad every month. I, I gave her pretty heavy-duty painkillers to help her function for the immediate episode. But to prevent this in the future, I did something just as an educated guess, because this was before we had done this, the, the research. I made the guess that if she increased the fiber content of her diet and cut the fat in her diet and did it a lot, that the amount of estrogen in her blood would diminish and get back in balance so that she wouldn't have the degree of uterine changes next. She tried a completely vegan diet as a way of eliminating all the animal fat and making sure that everything she ate had, had fiber because plants have fiber. And also I asked her to keep the oils really low. So she called me back a month later and it was this miraculous cure. She said, I, my period came, zero symptoms. And this continued month after month. So I then did a randomized trial with our colleagues at Georgetown University Department of OBGYN. But then in the course of this trial, one of the participants, um, we asked all the participants to, to avoid any hormonal medications, including birth control pills, because that would confound the effects of the diet, which is what we were testing. So we said, if they're sexually active, please use some contraception other than the pill, because that will goof up our study. And one of the participants said, don't worry about me. Um, I don't use any contraception. My husband and I were evaluated years ago for why we couldn't get pregnant. And it's not him. It's me. I don't ovulate. I'm completely infertile. That's it. And so we don't use contraception, so don't worry. The second month, 
that she was on the low-fat plant-based diet. She came in and said, Dr. Barnard, I've got bad news and good news. I said, well, what is it? She said, the bad news is I'm leaving your study, and the good news is I am pregnant. And she gave birth to a healthy baby, and then another baby, and then a third baby. And here's a woman who had this diagnosis of infertility that she was going to carry with her for the, whole, for the rest of her life. What she was was out of balance. And the first one with the menstrual pain, she would have a uh, diagnosis of dysmenorrhea that she would carry with her. Um, she was out of balance. And if you can get back into balance with food choices, these diagnoses can, in some cases, melt away. And so what, does, what role does the fiber play in, in that dance? What is it doing oh, and not doing when we don't have enough? Yes, exactly. Um, your, well, we, we talked about cheese. cheese contain, dairy products contain estrogens that come from a cow, and so that gets into your bloodstream. Um, and so, so that's bad. So when, when you get rid of the dairy products, your estrogen level will drop. That's, that's a good thing. But then the other thing is since you're not eating cheese or not eating animal products, you're now eating vegetables and fruits and beans and whole grains. They have fiber. And the role of fiber, it's, it's an essential part of your hormone elimination system. Your liver is filtering your blood, and it pulls excess estrogens out every minute of every day. And it sends it through the bile duct into the intestinal tract. That's where fiber is waiting, and the fiber escorts that estrogen out with the waste. You're literally flushing it away. But if your lunch was salmon or an omelet or a steak or yogurt, these have no fiber. And without adequate fiber in the intestinal tract, the estrogens will no longer remain there. They're pulled out by the liver and sent into the intestine, but without fiber, they're reabsorbed back into the bloodstream. They just cycle back into the woman's circulation. And the way to interrupt that is with a plant-based diet because that then says, okay, fine, we can get rid of these excess estrogens. And then there's just one other small part, and that is that for reasons we don't know, but fatty foods, whether it's chicken fat, probably even vegetable oil, but fats seems to elevate estrogens too. Uh, we don't know why that is, but it, but it does happen. So by avoiding dairy products, which contain estrogens, having uh, avoiding fatty foods and having lots of fiber, that's the key to getting into balance, to knocking out the menstrual cramps, the fertility issues, the endometriosis. Um, at, at least that should be job one uh, to get the patient back in balance. So when we're premenopausal or postmenopausal during menopause, um, the body is making less estrogen, which you at some level think, well, the body knows what it's doing. <laughs> That's a reason for making less estrogen. And yet it seems like the trend um, is now for women to be prescribed estradiols. So what is the thinking in that and, and what's your take on it? Um, the thinking in that is that breast cancer doesn't matter. And it's, it's dangerous thinking. What happened was years ago, um, a drug called Premarin, which was a, um, hormone replacement therapy, was incorporated into the Women's Health Initiative, a, a very large trial. Um, and it turned out that the, the women who took the hormone replacement, Premarin, um, had, uh, if you looked at the, at the typical regimen of combined hormone replacement therapy, they had much higher risk of many health problems, including breast cancer. Um, the drug was already controversial because it comes from horses. 
the, the name Premarin is a shortening of pregnant mare's urine. Mm. So the, the horses are impregnated, they're kept in a stall, their urine is collected in a quite unsavory way, and it's packed into pills, and women, women are told to swallow it, it'll make you young and vibrant forever. Um, but it turned out to give them breast cancer and, and all kinds of other problems. And when that came out, um, prescriptions tanked. Nobody would prescribe it. But the company has lots of money. And so they have been pushing very hard to, to try to salvage their market. And so they say, well, hot flashes are terrible. Um, you don't want to be uncomfortable, do you? Um, yes, they'll go away anyway, but you can, you can knock them out for now by swallowing Premarin. Now, I, I should say in fairness that there are other brand names. The, all, the, all the other hormone replacement products do not come from animals, um, and, but they all cause a higher risk of, of breast cancer. Um, so it's, it's a controversial thing, and it's up to women if they want to do this, but, but all doctors now recognize that hormone replacement will knock out hot flashes. Or I should put it this way, it will postpone them until you stop taking hormone replacement. Oh, and, and I mean, there's so much pressure, not just the hot flashes, but, oh, your hair will remain thick and, and um, you know, lustrous. Your, you won't get as many wrinkles. Your sexual drive will be up and you'll, you know, feel better. I mean, there's so much pressure, I think, um, from the culture and from doctors, even uh, more alternative um, healing-oriented doctors that, well, you know, you can take the bio-identical ones and, and then you'll have all of these benefits and, and none of the risks. I, I understand those pressures. Much of, many of these promises are mythological. Um, you can evaluate women who do and do not take hormones, and I defy you to show that one is younger and has better hair than, than the other one. Um, th there are some, some real things. Hot flashes are real. Um, they do eventually go away for most women. Um, but it's, it's frustrating when it happens. The sexual changes can happen. Um, there's vaginal dryness and so forth. Um, but it, rather than swallow a pill, if a woman is going to use a hormone, use just a local um, external application. Don't use more than that. Um, it, so far as we know now, does not have the risk. But, you know, stay tuned. It might. Um, so th these risks are real. It's not for me to tell women what they should do, but it's important that they understand what the risks may be. And also know that they could, oh, oh, if the they way. want to boost up the estrogen, you could do it with your diet. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, or you can, you, we, do, we do believe that diet changes can really smooth the menopausal yeah. transition. Sort out, I, I should mention, sort out the whole balance. Uh -huh. Yes, you, you mentioned bioidentical hormones. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I, I hasten to point out that bio identical hormones cause cancer just like the horse hormone, hormones yeah. do. Um, the hormones in your own body, the ones your ovaries make, cause breast cancer. Um, as we were saying earlier, hormones are toxic um, in their, even when they're doing what they're supposed to. They're, they're, it's like dynamite is very handy for construction crews, but it is a dangerous thing. And that's true for estrogen and testosterone and insulin and all of them. They're very risky. So if a person takes bioidentical hormones, um, it will very likely increase her cancer risk, just like any other hormone. So let's, in our in the last bit of our interview, talk about the food choices. And um, starting with vitamin C and then beta carotene and um, lysopene, and just so people can understand uh you know, where they get these and what they do. You know, I think a lot of people think about vitamin C and they think, oh, that, that prevents scurvy, you know, especially for pirates, but it does a lot more. So um, let's start with vitamin C and, and beta carotene. Sure. Well, these are antioxidants and they have many effects. Uh, 
you can think of them as cancer fighters. Um, they look for maladjusted compounds in your blood called free radicals. When they find them, they knock them out. They neutralize them. Um, and vitamin C is not found in animal products. It's in plants. Um, beta carotene is also in, in plants. It's the orange color in a carrot or a sweet potato. And it's a, a powerful antioxidant too. And uh, its cousin is called lycopene, which L-Y-C-O-P-E-N-E. Lycopene is the red color in a tomato or watermelon. And uh, blueberries have their own um, uh, antioxidants called anthocyanins, and the, they have that beautiful purple color. And the names don't matter. What matters is, is color. Um, Beta-carotene, it protects, it's, it's a powerful antioxidant for the carrot plant. And our retina evolved to have color vision so that we can recognize antioxidants. Um, and our brain always interprets them as positive. So we see the red color and the orange color and the purple color, and we're attracted to those things. Um, that's nature's way of saying, eat this thing, it'll save your life. Nope, I lost you for a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you were saying that the being able to see colors allows us to be attracted to those vegetables. Yes. If you go to the grocery store, you can be 100 yards away from the produce counter. Your retina can detect beta-carotene and lycopene and anthocyanins. Those are the colors in carrots and tomatoes and grapes and blueberries and, and that kind of thing. And now, if your cat were to walk in with you, your cat would not. Your cat doesn't have your color vision, and your cat's a carnivore anyway. So it does not the cat um, does not uh, is not interested in um, vegetables and fruits. Your cat is looking for motion, um, and they're, neurologically they are looking for a little mouse or a shrew off in the corner. So so that's where where, where they're going. They can make their own vitamin C. They don't need you. They don't need the the antioxidants that we great apes do need. Oh, um, so no, nowadays we take those collars and we put them in an M&M's bag, um, but their original purpose, <laughs> I think it makes, it makes sense to view them as nature's way of guiding us to good food choices. Okay, so how about the cruciferous vegetables? Because they are some, some macho players in the dance. Yeah, they're, they're big stuff. Um, the cruciferous uh, group is broccoli and cauliflower and collards and kale and Brussels sprouts. It's a big group, and their name comes from cross-shaped flowers, cruciferous. Um, and everybody loves them because of their taste and their versatility, but, but biologically, one of the things that they do is that they help your body to eliminate chemicals. Uh, chemicals arrive at the liver, and it tries to get rid of them. And if you've had a lot in your diet in the preceding 24 to 48 hours, your body makes more of what are called phase two enzymes, and those help you to eliminate um, chemicals that don't belong there. And it happens very fast. And, um, and so and without for, those in the system, the, the liver can't do the job, right? They can't remove the toxins if they're not getting what they need. Like it really is this interdependent system. Yes, you, your body is designed to have good, healthy. Unfortunately, um, our culture has moved toward chicken nuggets, um, which is not a plant. <laughs> So the, the fiber, I mean, there might be some fiber in the container that they sold it to you in, but chicken doesn't have that, and it doesn't have the nutrients that you really need for, for good health. And so um, it becomes more and more clear why we have epidemics of disease, because people aren't getting the nutrients they need, they need and they're getting nutrients that are throwing them off track. <laughs> 
Okay, the other two things I want to just define and then we'll move on because maybe that's a little, you know, <laughs> uninteresting, but I think so important is to understand what a microbiotic diet is and also how to make low glycemic choices and what that means, like how, how that, those both interact in our systems. Sure. Um, the, the macrobiotic diet is um, actually a, a traditional, it's, a, it's an outcome of traditional Chinese medicine. Um, and it's been recently sort of distilled through Japanese cuisine, so it favors lots of rice and, and vegetables and so forth, and it has been used for all kinds of applications, including helping cancer patients and helping people deal with chronic disease, um, and has been studied more and more and is uh, uh, really of great interest, I have to say. Um, as Looking more broadly, the, the theme of plant-based diets has become a huge theme in research, whether we look observationally at people who follow vegetarian diets or whatever, you compare these groups and see who does better. Or if you do, as our team does, randomized clinical trials where you assign people with diets and then you track how they do as they change. Um, the, a plant-based diet in general is really uh, a step in the right direction for good health. And um, you mentioned Chinese medicine and, and, and diet, and I'm wondering what your thoughts on on the idea that body type is relevant to the food choices we make, as it as it is in Chinese medicine and, and Ayurvedic health. That that you know uh, different body types and um, at different points in your life, um, and even where you're living, if you're at altitude or sea level, or if you know the weather's cold and dry, or if you're in a desert where it's hot and and um, dry, or if you're in a place that's super wet, that that, that would affect um, your relevant food choices. You know, I think many of these are unknowns and haven't been adequately tested. It is that these things affect our appetite. When you're in a hot tropical climate, your, your taste naturally goes for lighter foods and you want more fruit. And when people are back where I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, their taste goes for heavy, heavy foods. And um, why that is, I'm not entirely sure. Um, it is probably true that our food desires may in some occasionally reflect nutrient needs. But it's important. Many of our, our desires for foods are really dictated by addictions um, rather than by what our body actually needs. I mean, in the same way as your desire for alcohol doesn't mean that you have an alcohol deficiency. What it means is that you tasted it and it started interacting with your your, your neurology and such, uh, so as to implant itself forever on your memory. Um, the other thing that needs to be remembered is... Well, we and that even, I was just going to say, even in Chinese medicine, if you have a liver stagnation, you might desire alcohol or, or sugar, and it, it will make you feel better for a short term, but then it's going to be even worse as soon as that wears off, even worse than it was to begin with. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is true with something like cheese. People think, well, I'd like cheese. Uh, maybe there's something I need in it. What they're, what they're missing is that cheese contains mild opiates that came from a cow. They're called casomorphins. They're coded into the dairy protein, the, the casein protein, just a tract to release these mild narcotic chemicals that go to the, the brain and attach to the very same receptors that morphine attaches to which is why people get hooked on cheese, we believe. Um, but it has nothing to do with, with this helping you. If anything, it's going to cause you to gain weight and have all kinds of other health issues. But I think one thing that really does need to be remembered, and that is we are in the fa biological family of great apes. That includes chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans and bonobos, and we are not carnivores. 
we are not naturally carnivores at all. And despite evolution, we still have herbivorous bodies. Um, our coronary arteries don't do very well with a meaty diet, and neither do our digestive tracts or any of the rest of us. So the, the reason I emphasize that is there are some people who would like to imagine that as uh, time has gone on, we've, we have somehow evolved to either have a need for or to tolerate steak, <laughs> whatever, and, well, and, and that is not true at all. And the popular keto diet, right, and the argument that it's all about it, the proof is in our molars or in our canines, uh, canines, I guess, right, that that, that shows that we are where we were uh, carnivorous. Um, when your cat yawns, if you look at your cat's teeth, what you discover is they do have real daggers in their <laughs> coming out of their jaws that are able to uh, kill and dispatch prey and rip the hide off and rip, rip the muscles out, out of the skeleton. If you stumble into the bathroom and open your mouth in front of your mirror, you will discover that your canine teeth are no longer than your incisors. And that change occurred at least three and a half million years ago. And if you were to try to eat roadkill, your cat could do that fairly easily, as could other natural carnivores, but you would have a really tough time. And the only reason that we really adopted carnivorous diets was that the Stone Age gave us implements that allowed us to pretend to be carnivores. We're, we're slow. The, these bipedal hominids that are the human, human beings, we could never catch a gazelle um, or a rabbit or anybody else. But once we had, uh, once we had uh, uh, stone tools, uh, we could make arrowheads, and they're much faster than we are. And then when we could develop knives and axes, we could kill prey. Um, and then when we had fire, we were really onto something. But we have pre-Stone Age bodies. Um, that despite the fact that technology has allowed us to meat, dairy products, cocaine, and tobacco, um, none of these are actually natural for our, for our biology. So why do you, this will be our, our last question, because we're running out of time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, why do you think people and doctors um, and other people would, people too, but you get my point. Um, why would they rather attribute healing of an advanced cancer to a miracle than to a change in diet? You tell a story about a situation where there really is this miraculous change, um, but clearly attributable to, to a diet, but the physician would rather attribute it that it, it must be a miracle. It couldn't be a diet change. Yeah, it's, it's a peculiar thing. I think part of it is that doctors don't want to be fooled. You know, they, they, um, they don't want to suggest that a diet could actually do something um, as miraculous as, as having a condition regress. Um, however, um, if, I think doctors can be reassured when they understand how it works. And part of the reason that I wrote Your Body in Balance was to show not just lay people but doctors too how these, how these compounds work. So if a person makes a diet change and their estrogen level is reduced to a normal level, then the drive for the growth of, of breast cancer cells is diminished or the drive for endometriosis is diminished. Um, it's not rocket science. It's just pretty basic biology. And once doctors understand that, there was divine intervention that caused these diseases to go away. They realize it's just because the Velveeta is now in the trash. Dr. Ronner, thank you so much for, for your work and for the book and for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Sure. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Likewise. I hope okay. that was all right. Oh, fantastic. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye now.